Hello, and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by American Jewish Committee. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines to help you understand what they all mean for America, Israel, and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Manya Brashear-Pashman. All this month, we have been hearing from you, our listeners, on what being Jewish means to you. What makes you Jewish and proud? We have selected two more voices to wrap up this month's special segment, Hannah and Dina. I am Hannah, I'm eight years old. I am proud to be a Jew because of our bravery and contributions to the world and our beautiful culture and of our perseverance in questions. We have a beautiful language, which is Hebrew. We are a very special culture. Being a Jew is a very important part of my life. Hi, I'm Zena Fish. Being Jewish is a privilege. It's something that makes me feel fulfilled every day. And a big part of that is the religious structure that the Torah provides for my life and the connection that it enables me to have with people from all around the world. And three times a day, we turn to the Kotel, we turn to Jerusalem to pray and to feel connected. And I think that it's the most special thing that people from the diaspora all across the world know that their home is Israel, that the Jewish state is there for them. And every day Israel is working to make sure that irrespective of, you know, where you are, that you know you have a home, that Israel is there to welcome you. It makes me proud. It makes me so unbelievably proud to know that there is a place where a Jew, no matter if they speak Hebrew, no matter if they're religious, no matter if they even support the state of Israel, that there is a place for them to be and a place that is safe for them is just a miracle. This week, AJC marks Yom Yerushalayim, or Jerusalem Day, the date on the Hebrew calendar that celebrates the reunification of Jerusalem in June 1967, at the end of the Six-Day War. Here to discuss the triumph of that historic day, present-day troubles including the tensions around Temple Mount, and the trauma that continues to shape Israel's spiritual and political life, is journalist and author Yossi Klein-Halevi. Yossi, welcome to People of the Pod. Thank you, Manya. Great to be back. So, Yossi, just this week, a lower court ruled that authorities could not ban three Jewish teens who uttered prayers during a tour of the Temple Mount. The government is appealing the ruling because the status quo for decades has been for Israel to allow Jews to visit the Temple Mount, but only if they refrain from prayer and religious ritual. Why are more Israelis testing this, and what is its effect on the equilibrium there, or lack thereof? Well, first of all, I think that the almost certain outcome, and this is based on 50 plus years of precedent, is that the government's ban will be upheld by the Supreme Court. The government has the right, based on security needs, to make that call. The problem with the ruling is not that it's going to change the status quo, it almost certainly will not, but the perception, the message that's being sent out into the Muslim world is that the status quo has been changed. Now, Israel is operating in good faith within a legal system. This has to play out from one court to the next court through the appeals. 
But what worries me is that this has potential political and even security consequences. We've already seen Jordan vehemently denounce this decision. Israelis aren't really paying attention to this decision because we know that there's a certain pantomime here. You know, we're going through the motions. Okay, once again, they've gotten a lower court to affirm their right to pray. And of course, Jews have the right to pray on the Temple Mount. When I read journalist accounts about the Temple Mount controversy, they'll invariably note that the Temple Mount is the third holiest place for Islam. Well, it happens to be the holiest place for Judaism. It's not the Western Wall. The Western Wall has no intrinsic holiness. Its only holiness is that it's related as a former support wall to the Temple Mount. So in principle, yes, my heart and soul is with those Jews who long to pray on the Mount. But my head is, (laughs) my common sense is firmly with the government. And God forbid that the status quo should be changed because that will have immediate security consequences. And it will make the city in which I make my home, Jerusalem, unlivable. This will become a battleground. So God willing, Jews will continue to long for the Temple Mount and continue to confine our prayer to the Western Wall. Does the potential for danger worry you even more given the series of terrorist attacks there in recent months? Oh, absolutely. You know, we go through waves here. The last great wave of terror was the stabbing spree of, I guess it was around 2015, 2016, when there were dozens of terror attacks, mostly by loners, just pulling out a knife on the streets of Jerusalem. And each terror wave is psychologically cumulative. I'll give you an example. This morning, I was speaking with a taxi driver who had a very bad stutter, a young Jewish man. And it turned out that he was wounded in a suicide bombing during the Second Intifada in the early 2000s. He was a kid. He was 15 then. And he tells me that he lost his ability to speak properly because of his experience in the suicide bombing. I thought, you know, that was just one almost incidental conversation. He wasn't necessarily badly wounded. He was wounded in the leg. He's recovered. And I realized we are a society that is permanently scarred. We are in permanent PTSD. All of us, Jews, Palestinians, we are all in the grips of permanent trauma. When I go on a bus, I'm not even consciously thinking about it, but I realize I'm wondering if it's going to explode because my seminal experience with trauma were those terrible years of suicide bombings. So now we're in another wave. A new generation of Israelis are learning to psychologically adapt trauma to daily life. And that's really the great Israeli skill is that we manage the pretense of daily life so well. But this new wave is adding to the trauma of those of us who've lived with terrorism all these years. And now it's so disturbing for me to see this next generation of Israeli kids being introduced to this seminal experience of Israeliness. Yossi, I can't help but don my religion reporter hat and ask you about the spiritual impact 
of that trauma. I mean, you talk about longing for prayer at this holy site. Does this longing to connect with God grow as this community is traumatized more and more? I think that's a great insight, Manya. I, I had I really hadn't put those two together. This is really goes back to your first question, which I hadn't answered, which is why is this happening now? Why is there such an increase in pressure? For the Temple Mount? And why is longing being turned into political and legal activism? I should just preface my answer by emphasizing how dangerous this transition is from longing for the Temple Mount to an attempt to implement that longing. The consequences could just be catastrophic for Israel, for the Jewish people around the world, for Muslim Jewish tensions. It's playing with dynamite. But why it's happening, I really think you're on to something. I think that the Second Intifada, and this is something many American Jews didn't fully internalize, the Second Intifada transformed the state of Israel. It wasn't just another experience of terrorism. It was four years of the worst sustained terrorism we ever experienced in this country. And we never got over it. The most obvious result is political. The fact that the country shifted rightward, the fact that if you look at the Knesset, if you look at the makeup of the Knesset, something like 80 seats out of 120 are right wing. We never had that in Israel before. The Israeli left collapsed as a result of the Second Intifada. And I think it has had deep spiritual consequences as well. One very positive spiritual consequence was the transformation of Israeli music, Israeli popular music, which is one of my passions. Hebrew rock is one of the great creations, from my point of view, of the Zionist revolution. And Israelis are passionate about our music. And what began to change after the Second Intifada was you saw prayer enter into popular music. We'd never had that before. So we've seen the rejudization of Israeli culture. We've seen the breakdown of the barrier between secular and religious happening in what was once our most secular art form, which was Israeli rock, becoming the meeting point of a secular sensibility and and religious longing. But at the same time, the darker side of this process is a radicalization, especially within parts of the religious Zionist community, It isn't only the Second Intifada, I think it was the withdrawal from Gaza. The fact that we uprooted 8,000 Jews from their homes, and not only didn't it bring us closer to peace, but we had years of rocket assaults on our cities. And the trauma of the withdrawal from Gaza radicalized a part of the religious Zionist movement. And so what I see happening on the Temple Mount is a convergence of political, I would say, almost a cynical political manipulation of this religious longing, along with a genuine messianic apocalyptic anticipation that's growing in certain circles here. If you could provide for our listeners kind of a history of this status quo we keep referring to, this agreement to let Jews visit Temple Mount but refrain from prayer and religious rites, and, and do you see, I think you already addressed this, but do you see that status quo changing anytime soon? If the opposition 
the political opposition led by Netanyahu and including the far-right party that calls itself religious Zionism, which I feel is such an affront to the honor of religious Zionism. If the coalition headed by Netanyahu, which includes this party, comes to power, all bets are off. Because what this party is going to demand, almost certainly, is a change in the status quo. Now, in terms of your question, Manya, about how the status quo emerged, it began immediately after the end of the Six-Day War in 1967. The defense minister, Moshe Dayan, unilaterally, without consulting the cabinet, took advantage of his extraordinary popularity. He was the hero of the Six-Day War. And he initiated a meeting with the Muslim officials of the Waqf, the Muslim religious trust that is responsible for the Temple Mount, and effectively handed back the keys to the Mount and gave the Waqf veto power over who could continue to pray on the Mount. I think that was an extraordinary moment of restraint that is really unparalleled. I can't think of another country that regains its most sacred place, the place it longed for 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 2,000 years, and at the moment of its greatest victory, hands back the keys to another faith. I bless Moshe Dayan for doing that. It's a very controversial decision to this day. Many Israelis believe we made a major mistake, we signaled weakness, I think we spared the Middle East a great deal of bloodshed by that decision. Now, I'll tell you, as a religious Jew, I I find that painful. The fact that, that if I go up to the Temple Mount, I'm followed by, by Waqf officials who are watching my lips to make sure that they're not moving in prayer. There's something so absurd about a Jew being unable to even move your lips in prayer on our holiest site when a Jewish state is is in control of security of the mount. There's no absurdity like this anywhere. And yet, God forbid that that we make any changes there. So that's part of the paradoxes that we live with that are built in to to the Israeli experience. This country is one big paradox. And one reason, just as an aside, but I for me I feel so strongly about this. When I, you know, when I meet groups from abroad that come visit Israel, groups of journalists or other groups, and what I try to explain to them is this is this place is so easy to get wrong. Because anything that you'll say about this place might be true, but the opposite statement is probably true as well. The Temple Mount situation is almost a microcosm of the paradoxes that we live with, the absurdity of the paradoxes we live in. But these are essential paradoxes for us to hold, to keep in tension, and not necessarily resolve. I think that's that in some ways for me, that defines what the challenges are that Israel faces. We don't have answers to many of our most basic questions. 
Yes, Israel is a Jewish state. Yes, Israel is a democratic state. Does it go together? With great difficulty, but we can't give up either identity. And in some way, when I think of the Temple Mount, yes, this is our holiest site. Yes, we have to assert our, our, our sovereignty by maintaining security, but no, Jews cannot pray even when we have returned to the Mount. So that's Israel. It's, it's one big paradox. I really appreciate your view on restraint. And this episode uh, does mark the reunification of Jerusalem, Jerusalem Day. And you've written an entire book about, uh, about this re- reunification, the end of the Six-Day War, like Dreamers. And in that book, you include another extraordinary moment of restraint. So you're talking about the paratroopers coming to the Temple Mount on June 7th, 1967. Yes, um, yeah, I mean, that's, you know, that is one of my um, favorite um, moments in this whole story. And there are two, two pieces of this here. The first is related to the restraint we were just talking about. The paratroopers come to the Temple Mount. They break through the Lion's Gate, which is adjacent to the Mount. They actually don't go to the wall first. The breakthrough is happening right onto the mount. And the first paratroopers who, who come to the mount uh, discover that it's completely empty. The Jordanian, there, there was a Jordanian military base on the mount. It was evacuated the night before the paratroopers break into the old city. And they come onto the mount. Uh, there are two, two paratroopers come onto the mount first. Um, Matagor, the, the commander of Brigade 55, the paratroopers that, that reached the mount, and his chief intelligence officer, Arik Ahmad. And first, they're, they're, they scout out the mount to make sure that there aren't any snipers, and they see that they're completely alone. Now, imagine this moment. You are the first, the first sovereign Jews, the first sole Jewish soldiers to be on this mount in 2000 years. And then other paratroopers start coming. And one of the paratroopers goes over to Matagur and says, listen, I have, a, I have an Israeli flag in my pouch that I kind of brought for thus, this possibility that we would actually get to this place. Can I hang it up over the Dome of the Rock, the Gold Dome? And Matagor says to him in Arabic Hebrew, Yala, go up. And um, Arik Ahmon, the chief intelligence officer and, and, and one other soldier, climb up, they go into the Dome of the Rock and they see that there is this pole a golden pole with a with a Islamic crescent on top. And and Arik sends the other soldier to go up all the way and fastens the flag to the Islamic crescent. The Israeli flag is now flying over the Temple Mount. Moshe Dayan is watching this through binoculars, through his one eye, you know, with his eye patch on the other. He's standing on Mount Scopus, which is 
a few minutes away from, uh, from the Temple Mount as the, as the crow flies. And he sees the Israeli flag flying over the Dome of the Rock. He immediately gets Matagur on the wireless and he yells at him. He says, are you out of your mind? If anyone takes a photograph of this, the Middle East will burn. Take the flag down immediately. Mata conveys the order to Arik Ahmon, his chief intelligence officer. Arik conveys the order to one of his, his soldiers. And as Arik explained it to me afterwards, he said, I didn't have the heart to take the flag down. I sent one of my men up to do it. So the first moment of restraint happens at precisely the most ecstatic moment in 2000 years of Jewish history. At, at that very moment, Moshe Dayan orders the Israeli flag to be taken down. Now there's one other story here that I love, which is, which is connected. I'd mentioned earlier that the paratroopers did not go to the wall, they first broke through to the Temple Mount. So you have hundreds of soldiers on the Temple Mount. On, and many of them were religious, and they're standing on, on, on the holiest ground in Judaism. And yet, the first question the soldiers are asking is, where's the wall? Now think about that for a moment. It's so counterintuitive. If the wall has no intrinsic holiness, and, and it's really all about the glory of the Temple Mount, and this is the most glorious military moment in Jewish history, I would argue. What are, why are you interested in the wall that symbolized our humiliation, our exile? And the paratroopers en masse leave the Temple Mount and go down to the wall, and they throw themselves against the stones. This, for me, is the most touching moment of the war. Because what the paratroopers are saying here is, yes, we're the new Jews, we're the conquerors, we're the heroes, but this is the moment to pay homage to the Jews who for 2000 years in exile kept faith with this place. I'm curious what impact the reunification of Jerusalem had on the Jewish diaspora, both here in North America, but elsewhere around the world, for example, in the Soviet Union. I mean, we're talking 1967 here when the Soviet Jewry movement was just beginning to gain momentum. What was the impact? Well, this is, um, this is one of my formative memories because uh, I actually uh, joined the Soviet Jewry movement uh, in 1965. I was a kid. I was 12 years old. And I joined the student struggle for Soviet Jewry, which had just been formed a year before. And the Jews of the Soviet Union were voiceless. They were living under... Uh, totalitarian control. They were intimidated. This was not so long after Stalin. And the Six-Day War changed Jewish history, not only in the state of Israel, but in the Soviet Union, in the diaspora generally. The Six-Day War triggered the emergence of, uh, of the refuseniks, of the Jews, Soviet Jews, who did something that no one in the Soviet Union had ever done before, which is as a group, challenge the authority of the Soviet regime. 
And the story of the liberation of Soviet Jewry begins with the Six Day War. I don't know if we would have a million Soviet Jews in the state of Israel today and half a million Soviet Jews in the United States, uh, if not for the Six Day War. The Six Day War galvanized young Jews into seeking a connection with Israel and, and their Jewish identity. And so what we owe as a people to the Six Day War is the transformation of, of Jewish life everywhere. It also emboldened American Jews. I very well remember the, the American Jewish community pre-1967 and post-1967. American Jewry before the Six Day War was still a fairly timid community. It was very hesitant about expressing too strong a public stand on Jewish issues. And the Soviet Jewry movement in America really begins taking off after the Six Day War. Look at the history of the AJC. The AJC in its early years was very much, you know, more behind the scenes. And that really reflected the sensibility of the American Jewish community. And so the AJC that we know today is different. And what, what, and I always try to say this to young American Jews, don't take your empowerment for granted. What the Six Day War and the State of Israel generally helped American Jews become are both more Jewish, more confident in their Jewishness, and I would argue more confident in their Americanness. Because America embraced the state of Israel after the Six Day War. Israel became the hero. Now I, I understand today we're in a different, we're in a different dynamic. But the Jewish community, the self-confident Jewish community that we know today, which is self-confident both in its public Jewishness and in its place in America, is in large part, there were other factors, but in large part, thanks to the, I would argue, to the empowerment of the state of Israel. You keep talking about self-confidence, and I would replace the term self-confidence with pride. And as AJC wraps up its month-long celebration of what makes our community Jewish and proud, we are asking all of our guests to reflect on that. So what does being Jewish mean to you, Yossi? What makes you Jewish and proud? Well, I like that shift from self-confidence to pride. I think that the precondition psychologically is pride and out of pride emerges self-confidence. Self-confidence is the practical expression of pride. I'll speak as the son of a Holocaust survivor whose Jewish identity and my formative years was shaped by the overwhelming sense of being part of the generation immediately after and of trying to make sense of this. And in some way, that's been my lifetime mission, personally as a Jew, to define my own Jewish identity, living in a new era of Jewish history that comes after that. And also, I would say it defines most of my work professionally as a writer, someone really trying to understand 
this moment in Jewish time, that's my moment. That's the moment in which I'm incarnated here on earth. What I feel today is that my pride in being a post-Holocaust Jew is that we are a survivor people. And by survivor people, I don't mean only or even primarily that we are the people that endured and got through the Holocaust. What I'm most proud about is how we survived the Holocaust, that we went from the lowest point in our history, which was 1945, to what I regard as the peak moment of Jewish history, which is today. We have never been more central on the world stage than we are today as a collective, as a people. We've never, I think, had so much to say to the world as we do now. And the world has never been paying attention so closely to what we say, not always in a good way. Our centrality on the world stage is a mixed blessing. Nevertheless, if you look at the vitality of Jewish life, we have an expression of Jewish sovereignty and power in the state of Israel that we have never had in our history, including the Davidic kingdom. And at the same time, simultaneous with this unprecedented power is the emergence of the most self-confident, powerful, and accepted diaspora community that we've ever had in our history. And it's owning our identity as a survivor people, as the people that not only survived the Shoah, but managed to stop being victims, and that managed to turn the abyss into the, the, this moment of historic transcendence. Now, there are enormous problems with both of these great achievements, with, with Jewish sovereignty and with the American Jewish community. We all know the problem. But every so often, I think we really just need to step back and say, and, and have this sense of awe and gratitude, of course. How did we do this? This has been such a wonderful, invigorating conversation. I am so grateful that you joined us. Well, thank you. I, I so much enjoyed this, Manya. And I, I always love uh, any excuse to, uh, to be back in the AJC orbit. So, so thank you. As AJC Global Forum approaches, People of the Pod will be taking next week off to prepare. But if you missed last week's episode, be sure to tune in for a conversation between my colleagues Holly Huffnagel and Dr. Saba Sumek about diversity, equity, and inclusion programs and what needs to change to properly address prejudice against Jews. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producer is Atara Lakritz. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, or learn more at ajc.org slash peopleofthepod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at ajc.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to tell your friends, tag us on social media with hashtag peopleofthepod, and hop on to Apple Podcasts to rate us and write a review to help more listeners find us. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod.